All right, so we've got some fun things coming up there for both uh, our men and women here at True North. One of the things I just got to laugh about off the back of John and Riley there. So we have these kind of arguments amongst men. Who is the manliest man? It kind of comes out of these kind of things. It's funny to me that at women's events, there's never the conversation about who is the most womanly woman. Does that happen and I'm just not aware of it? I, I'm unsure of what even the metric would be in that scenario, but, but it's just something that, that men do, unique to men, but uh, our men's camp's going to be a lot of fun coming up and some great spaces for all the ladies here as well. Yeah, we are going to continue this morning in a series on party theology. We'll be getting into that in just a moment, but before we get into that, can I just say good morning? It's great that you could be here today. If we're, we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Phil. I'm part of the team here at True North, and it's, uh, it's so cool that you could uh, be here today for our service. And and to engage in what's going on and, and maybe what God might speak uh, through our time here together. So if, you're, if you are new in the last couple of weeks or you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're tracking with this party theology series. And one of the things that, that we notice in the, the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, is that so often Jesus... He finds himself at these kind of uh, moments and spaces. He's at feasts, he's at banquets, he's at wedding celebrations, and he finds himself just enjoying these kind of experiences that you might describe as a party. And then in addition to that, Jesus also uses that picture of a party, a joyful celebration, to describe what God's kingdom is actually like. And so the idea of party theology is what does it mean for us as people of faith to carry that aspect of God's kingdom here and now in the day? today. So we've been having some fun with that over the last couple of weeks. And actually, one of the things that we're going to do on the, the last week of this series that I wanted to tell you about this morning. So this series we're going to track through till uh, Sunday, October 13th. And on that particular Sunday, we're, we're going to have a banquet here at True North. Does that sound pretty good? We have a banquet. There's people cheering. I like that. And, uh, and what we're going to try to symbolically do, Jesus and, and in particular other parts of the Scripture, they talk about heaven as being like this great banquet. And I sometimes think about the way that God sees uh, a party amongst His creation. And it's people with all different backgrounds, all different stories all different cultures, all different generations coming together to celebrate at this great banquet. So, so what we're going to do on October 13th, I want to invite everyone to bring along a dish that kind of captures who you are, your story, maybe your family, your cultural background. And, uh, and it's going to be like, if you're, if you're familiar with the old school church language, like the potluck, anyone familiar with that from the, I don't know what decade that arose from, probably the 70s or something like that. But, but I want to invite you to bring a dish along and we're going to have a whole banquet table set up, and, uh, and we'll work out ways to keep that hot through the service or cold through the service. People smarter than me will tend to that. But we're going to have a great banquet together, so I encourage you to be thinking about that. Think about a dish that kind of captures your family, your culture, and we're all going to share in that and have a, have a great party together on October 13th, just after the, the 10 a.m. service. Does that sound fun? That's going to be good, right? We're going we're gonna to hang out, have a meal. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun at the end of our party theology uh, run. But uh, getting into today, one of the things that I've become aware of, I've been thinking a little bit about parties over the last, um, the last couple of weeks. Now, who, who's, been to a, who's been to a birthday party before? But there's some people that have never been to a birthday party. Okay. Get, if you've never been to a birthday party, let me know. I'll invite you to my next birthday party. We've probably all been to a birthday party. We've been to other kinds of parties. We've been to farewell parties. Some of us have been to retirement parties. Some of us can remember going to my parents are away for the weekend parties. 
Anyone get along to one of those parties? They're usually the most positive ones. You never make bad life choices or anything like that. We've been to all different kinds of parties. Now, I want to speak into this morning a particular aspect of what it means to be present at a party and how we prepare to go to a party a little bit and how we like to be seen at a party. Now, whether we like it or not, and I'm going to reduce this to the most simple language that I possibly can, that when we are present at parties or any expression of community with other people, we have just a little part of us, if we're prepared to admit it, a part of us that just wants to be seen as being cool, right? You go to the party, you just want to be cool. And I'm not surprised everyone's quiet right now, because this is an aspect of our human nature that we don't love to admit about ourselves, that there's a part of us that actually wants to look good. You know, I'm, I'm, whenever I think about this phrasing, I'm always reminded of the, uh, the original Men in Black movie, where you've got Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Anyone remember that movie? We've got some super fans of the original Men in Black. And Tommy Lee Jones, he kind of wears his black suit. And then Will Smith, he eventually gets his black suit. And he says, you know what the difference is between me and you? Do anyone remember the quote? Right, I'm going to make this thing look good. And Will Smith, in that moment, he captures this aspect of human nature that if we're, if we're able to admit it, it's something that we like. We like to look good in the spaces that we go to. We like to look good in the context of community. We like to look good in the different parties that we're present at. Now, I know we don't like to admit that, so we're going to lean into it gently this morning. But the reality is Jesus speaks into this same space as well. And if you, if, you'll be, if you be forgiving with my diction, Jesus, in fact, gives a parable about what it means to be cool what it means to look good in communion. We're going to jump into that passage and into that parable this morning. But before we get to the scripture, I want to set the scene a little bit of the, at the party that Jesus has been invited to. Now, historians and commentators around God's Word, they'll give us a little bit of a picture and an insight into what a feast looked like in the world that Jesus lived. And the, the feast, it was like an expression of a party. And Jesus, in this passage we're going to look at, he's invited to a particular feast at the house of a Pharisee. And, uh, and as Jesus arrives at that feast, he notices something. Now, to get at that, we've got we've to try and imagine ourselves stepping into the feast that Jesus was at. Can we do that together this morning? We're going to step into the feast. We're going to be present in this moment. Now, what we would have looked like walking into that room, we would have found a large central table set pretty low to the floor. And upon that table would have been all the food for the great feast that all the guests were invited to enjoy. And then around that, uh, around that low, low to the ground table, there was, a, there was a couch that would go all the way around the table to form a U-shape. So it wouldn't go completely around, but it would form a U-shape around this great banqueting table. Now, the way it worked in the culture that Jesus lived at these kind of feasts, if you were the most honored guest, if you were like the guest of honor for the, the Pharisee, it might have been a great teacher of the law, a rabbi, something like that. Could have possibly even been Jesus in this case. Now, the, the most honored guest, they would get to sit at the very center of the U. Has everyone got a mental picture of this? So you've got the couch, you've got the U, you've got the table of food. The most important person would sit right there. And then radiating outwards from the most important person, the next important people would kind of sit there, then there, then there. And radiating outwards, you'd kind of get less and less important until you got to the very, you turn the corner, and then you get to the very end of the couch. And, and for the purposes of this passage, I'm going to call that the social nubs of the, the couch. 
Can you, can you just turn to the person next to you and say, you're not a nub? <laughs> Come on, say, you're not a nub. There's no nubs at True North. No nubs at True North Church. But you get to the end, you get the kind of the, the least place of honor at this feast was at the very end of these couches. Now, Jesus is invited to a feast a little bit like this. And you can imagine him standing to the side a little bit. And he just kind of watches this scene play out. And he notices that different people, as they're arriving, they're all trying to get in the seats that hold the greater place of honor. They're all trying to get as close to the center of the U as they can. They're all desperately trying to avoid being at where? The nubs. They don't want to be at the nubs, so they're fighting. You can imagine there's some kind of awkward, quiet arguments going on. You can imagine there's a little bit of a musical chairs kind of vibe going on. And Jesus just watches this whole thing play out as these guys around the table are trying to look as good as they possibly can. Here's how Jesus responds to it. We're going to pick this up in, uh, where are we reading from today, Luke? Luke 14. I was actually asking a media guy, not the Bible. (laughs) can see how that could be confusing. Uh, So Luke, I I don't often refer to books of the Bible as a person and talk to them. So Luke 14, starting in verse 7. So Jesus, he's in this picture. Now when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Now here's here's a little bonus feature. Whenever we hear Jesus tell a parable, one of the things that's really helpful for us to understanding what Jesus is about to communicate is that parables almost always will emerge out of a unique context. So remember that Jesus has walked into this scenario. He sees the people kind of fighting for the places of honor. And then in response to what he sees, Jesus offers a parable to bring teaching and encouragement. And a lot of the time throughout the the Gospels, this is how parables begin, that Jesus tells a story in response to a very particular situation. And we know what that is in this passage. So when you notice how the guests pick the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Are we ready to read this parable together? This is a fun story. You're going to love this. Jesus told them this parable, and if you like, about how to be cool. Someone say, be cool. All right. And here's what Jesus offers. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you, I love that word, distinguished. That's a cool word, right? I won't ask you to say it again. (laughs) The more distinguished person than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place all the way back at the nubs of the couch. Now, what Jesus is describing here is a real-life social example from the world that they lived in, that this exact thing could literally happen. Then we can continue on a bit more in the parable. But when you're invited, and here's how Jesus flips the script of what's expected in this scenario, which he often does in parables as well. He offers this advice, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. So Jesus is offering wisdom kind of on how to look good within this particular social context. But he's also doing far more than that. And we find what he's getting at in the final line that he offers in this parable. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Now, there's two pictures that, that come to my mind when I hear this final phrase. I, I see a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do through his crucifixion and resurrection, that he would be humbled and then exalted through the resurrection. But I also see a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like, that to know God's kingdom and the fullness of God's kingdom requires a humbling of self to know the glory that the Father would bring to our lives through who Jesus is. So Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's talking about how we engage and access and live out God's kingdom in the context uh, of this particular feast and this particular parable. So the first thing that, that I see Jesus speaking into here, and we've kind of locked horns with it already, is this kind of this idea of looking good. But I want to give it a different phrase. And I think this is what Jesus is targeting. And it's, uh, again, it's not a descriptive phrase that we ever like to say, yeah, this might be me, but I'm going to throw it on the screens anywhere. anyway. And it's self-promotion. Now, I'm not talking about if you've got a small business and you're promoting it. This, this is not what I'm talking about. But this idea of having an internal drive to look as good as we possibly can. And there can be, you know, some fun, silly applications of that. But there can also be some core human nature aspects of this that can take our lives in a negative direction. You know, I heard a story this week um, about a, a young basketball player named OJ Mayo. Any fans of the NBA here this morning? <sighs> Come on, give, give me something. We, what, what, yeah, okay, I've got, I, I'm suspecting there are some more fans in here. That was like the first zero hands call out I've ever gone, I've ever seen. Okay, thank you. All right, we've got it up to three or four. Well, even if you don't like the NBA, let me tell you a good story with application to all walks of life. So there's a, a high school player named OJ Mayo who's, who's, uh, who's projected to be a future NBA star. He's still in 11th grade, and, uh, and, uh, but he's projected to be like he's going to be the next, the next big thing in the world of basketball. And like many young players, he gets invited along to a special basketball camp called Michael Jordan's School of Flight. So, so Jordan, it's a fun name for Jordan, right? School of Flight. But anyway, so he runs this camp to basically develop kids who are going to have professional careers. And OJ, as a, a number one projected draft pick in high school, of course, gets invited along to this particular camp. And one afternoon, they're, they're playing some five-on-five -five games of basketball, and you can actually see footage of this. And so there's hundreds uh, of students in the bleachers watching this game. And the reason they're all there watching is because Michael Jordan himself has decided to play in this game. At this time, he was 43 years old. He'd been retired for five years. But he's still Michael Jordan, right? It's still going to be fun. So he decides to play in this game. And what ends up happening is that him and OJ Mayo, this, this young kid, they, they end up playing on each other. And as the game gets going, this kid, OJ Mayo, he, start, he starts feeling it. He starts putting some shots in. He starts doing some nice moves. And then there's this moment that comes where he actually steals the ball from Michael Jordan. He strips him. Right? Yeah, see, there's more NBA fans here than what you let on. You guys are liking this story. Like, oh, I know what's coming. So he strips the ball off MJ, and then he starts with the trash talk. He starts throwing a little bit of shade at Michael Jordan. Like, who does that as a high school student? Sure, he's 43, but I would not be, you know, I would not be poking that bear right now. And because he's got all hundreds of, hundreds of other kids watching him do well, and OJ, mate, he's just this thing inside him is just activated that I want to look as good as I possibly can right now. I'm dropping buckets on Jordan, one of the greatest of all time, and he's just loving it. Now, what he didn't realize, 
that even as he was getting motivated by this desire to look good in front of everyone, that Michael Jordan, alongside being one of the greatest basketballs, possibly of basketball players of all time, also likes to look good as well. And he activated this mode in Jordan. And here's what Jordan does. He stops the game. All right, time out. We're going to take care of some business here. He clears the entire gym. He says, Every kid, all the students, you get out of here. Get, just get out. He makes sure all the cameras are off, all the mobile phones are gone. So if you search this on YouTube, you can actually see the game where they're all watching, and then there's no footage of what happens next. He clears out the whole gym except for the 10 players on the court and a couple of subs, and then he goes to work. He says, okay, you want to look good? I'll show you what good looks like. And he just goes to work. And there's this legendary story coming out of that gym from the players that were present that talk about Jordan just going to this other level and putting this young kid back in his place. Now, I tell this story for two reasons. One, this is an example of two individuals that are both highly motivated by the idea of looking good. And I'm sure Jordan, in his response to that scenario, perhaps did not do everything that he could to encourage that young man to continue to grow his play. Maybe he did. I don't know. But... They're both driven by this desire to look good. Now, here's what we remember about O.J. Mayo. Anyone heard the name O.J. Mayo before? You haven't. No one's heard that name. That's a, that's a name that I'm expecting no one to know. Because what actually happened is he ended up having a thoroughly average career that finished short, and now he's playing in some other international competition elsewhere. But the story that everyone remembers him for is that, oh, you're that kid. You're that kid that tried to show up Michael Jordan. You're that kid that tried to look good in front of everyone. How did that work out? Not super good. Now, I tell this story because I'm aware of a reality in my own life, that whenever I become too driven by the desire to look good, it takes my life in a negative direction. And I'm also prepared to admit that I do have that drive within me. You know, I want to offer you a thought this morning. There's a, a friend of mine and a, a good friend of our church, a guy named James Bryant, who does um, some leadership coaching, self-leadership things for high-functioning teams. And around this space, he's developed this idea of four drivers of human behavior, four drivers what he calls the four jets. So you can imagine a jet causing movement in a body of water like a spa or that cool whirlpool thing at Joondalup. Anyone been to that whirlpool? You got kids? It's, it's the best example of the four jets I can think of, but usually people have no idea what that is. So I'm glad a few of you are with me. So it's like the jets that cause motion in our life. And what he's landed on is this idea that there are four primary jets that create motion in our life that influence the kind of decisions that we make, the kind of behaviors that we end up having. It starts to explain some of the reactions that we have. And here are the four drivers, and I want to go through them real quick. The four jets. The first one is to be right, that, that all of us in our human nature, the theory is that, that we're driven by this desire to be right. And, and in each of these four jets, individuals will experience them differently at different levels, and there might be one that sticks out to you more than the others. But, but here's one, if you're, you're driven by this overarching desire to, to, to be right, that that's going to show up in some places in your life. And if you're put in a position where you're made, made to feel wrong, particularly in front of others, it's going to cause a reaction in you. Here's another one, is to be in control. Another driver that if you're left in a position where there's too many, too many variables that you can't control, it's going to cause a lot of stress for you. Are there, are there any control people here this morning? You don't have to put your hand up if you don't want to. They're like, that's me, but I'm definitely not putting my hand up. 
Another one is uh, is the feel good jet. So if you become if you're overly influenced by this driver of I just want to live my life in a way that's going to create situations where I feel good, where I'm enjoying myself, where I'm having fun, where where just life is good. And if that's the primary jet or driver in our lives, that's going to shape our lives in a particular way as well. I'm kind of a feel-good guy. As I look through these jets, I think feel-good's the one that I've got to make sure I don't let get out of control. And then, and then of course, for the passage that we're focusing on today, this, this is the key one, this look-good jet. This look-good jet, that, that if we can be honest enough to say there's a part of each one of us that is motivated by the desire to look good, now, not one of us likes to admit that. So I'll take the first, start, first step by doing it publicly in front of a couple hundred people. But if we rip that band off and, band-aid off and say, okay, there's a part of me that is motivated by a desire to look good in front of others. Where could that take my life? Let me give you a, a somewhat comical, over-exaggerated picture of what this might look like. If I were to say, okay, Brian, from now on, my life is going to be completely geared around looking as good as I possibly can in front of everyone. Every decision I make, every, everything that I do is going to be focused on looking as good as I possibly can. Do you, do you think that's going to be positive for my life or negative? Negative? You sure? A- anyone else who thinks if I just 100% lean into this, every decision, I'm going to look as good as I can. Who, who thinks I might end up looking good? Maybe. Is it going to be good for my soul? Maybe not. Let, let me give you some little processes. Let's say, okay, I'm committing to this model. This is going to be the new model for my life. I'm going to look as good as I can. Here would be some tips that I would give myself if this is what I was going to do. Okay, let, let's check these out. You know, find what you think is most impressive about yourself and broadcast that as often and as loudly as possible. People love that, right? I think people will really like that. Consider ways to demonstrate how you are more important than those around you. Take advantage of the weakness of others to make yourself appear better by comparison. Above all, desperately hide anything about yourself that might be considered by anyone as unattractive or unappealing. Does anyone else feel uncomfortable just even having those phrases on the screen? You kind of look at I, I can't look at that anymore. Actually, can you take that off? I just, I can't look at that anymore. Now, the reason we feel so uncomfortable seeing that on a screen, spelled out with that much clarity, is because there is a part of my soul, there's a part of your soul, that sometimes thinks a little bit like one of those phrases. It's the, the negative aspects of our human nature that sometimes come out where probably some of the worst decisions that we've made relationally have been influenced by that kind of thinking, by those kind of responses. So Jesus observes an aspect of this around the table at this particular feast, and he offers a different solution. He offers what I'm going to call social humility, He says, don't strive for the most important place, but rather take the least place. And the inference, I guess, is the only thing that you're at risk of is if you take the least place, is that someone's going to invite you to step up to more. And Jesus describes that picture in the parable. He says, don't 
promote yourself. Don't fight for the place of honor, but take the least place around the table. Now, this could be a difficult thing to wrap our heads around. I imagine how the guests around the table might have responded to Jesus' advice through this parable. Those that were sitting near the, the head of the table, near the center of the U, like, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. Maybe the guys at the ends of the couches, the nubs, maybe they'd be like, yeah, Jesus, come on. That's what we're talking about. We're the greatest over here. And maybe they didn't quite get what Jesus was talking about here. Make yourself the least. Now, there's another moment in the life of Jesus that, to me, brings this story to life in a whole new way. And perhaps the most important meal of Jesus' life, he's gathered for a feast, a Passover feast. He's with his disciples. And the reason I conclude it's perhaps the most important meal in the life of Jesus is that it's because it's his last meal, the last meal with his disciples, sharing Passover together before he'd be taken away to be crucified. But they gather around the table to celebrate, to eat together, to drink together. And then something a little bit too similar to what happens at this story at the house of the Pharisee plays out at the last meal that Jesus ever experiences. Across the, the gospel accounts, we, we hear the story of an argument that breaks out amongst the disciples at this Last Supper. And they start to argue about maybe who's the coolest, <laughs> who looks the best, who's the most important. And their arguments are distilled to this one idea, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest among us? Around, we know Jesus is the, the most significant. He's the, the teacher. They were starting to understand a notion of him being the Messiah. He's the most important, but then who's the greatest after Jesus? And they start having this exact same battle for importance that Jesus experiences at the house of the Pharisee. And Jesus watches it play out again. And then if you're familiar with, with this story, you'd know that Jesus has a very particular and powerful response to it. He takes off his outer robe. He gets a basin full of water and he begins washing the feet of the disciples. Now, there's an extra layer to what Jesus does here culturally, that at a feast like this, normally there would be a, a servant that would wash the feet of the guests in preparation for the meal. And if there wasn't a servant, it would kind of be expected that the, the least important person at that gathering or, or the, the, the lowest person kind of in their social values and their system in, uh, of, uh, in society for them, that the, the least amongst them would be the one that had the unpleasant job of washing everyone's feet. And, and as I reflect on these passages, I wonder that, that maybe that could have even been the catalyst for this argument amongst the disciples. Who's going to wash everyone's feet? There's no servant here. It's just my imagination working. But then Jesus takes the role of the least. He takes the water. He begins washing the feet of the disciples. He dries the feet with a towel. And he becomes the least amongst that group. Now, this picture is so rich in the symbolism of what God's kingdom is like. It's pictures of Christ washing the sin away, the things that separate us from God. It's a picture of the, the, the way that we know is salvation, by Jesus lowering himself 
to the least of us, to that which is least in me, to redeem it to its greatest that he created me to be. It's a picture that rings true with the final phrase of that parable, that whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And it's Jesus in real time, in this meal, practicing what he preached around the table of the Pharisee. This is what it looks like. And you know what I love about this picture? Is that when, when Jesus humbles himself, when we humble ourselves, we exalt God and we exalt others. That when we humble ourselves in this way, we actually get less focused on how good we look and get more focused on how our lives make God look and how our lives make others look. And this is what Jesus is modeling right here in this moment. It's not about how can I make myself look as good as possible. It's about how can I make others look and be as whole as possible. You know, I want to take you to, to John's, John's account of this final Passover meal real quickly. Because there's something really significant here in how he phrases it. And we're going to go to John 13 verses 3 to 5 real quick here. Now, here's, here's an observation in verse 3 that, that Jesus makes about himself. He understands who he is as the divine Son of God, and here's how he describes it. Now, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, Jesus, in this moment, we know he knows who he is as the divine Son of God. He knows that he is one with God. That creation happened through who he is. Jesus understands very clearly that he is above all of creation. And that's what makes verse 4 here so incredibly powerful. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I invite the team to, to come and join us, and we're going to reflect in the presence of God in, in the moments to come. But, but I want you to sit in this picture for a moment, that Jesus, he knew the incredible value that he carried as the creator God. And I think there's something so important in this, this passage, and, and as we form our theology around this idea, that, that whenever we have these kind of conversations, we, we need to know that this isn't a comment about personal value. Jesus isn't saying, believe that you have less value. When he says, take the lowest place, he's not saying, understand that you have the least value. That's not what he's saying at all. And by contrast, we see him here declaring that he knows he's the one that made creation happen, yet he's prepared to be the least amongst a group of men around a table. Now, this is something that we need to take hold of. So we're not take, making a comment about the worth that we have. We're not making a comment about the value that we have. We're not making a comment about here how dearly loved by God we are. What would, the question we're asking is how much of my life is about making myself look good or how much of my life is about making others look good, making God look good. You know, there's, there's two symbols that I love that play out across these two passages. And one of the things that I think we need to decide as people, as people of faith, 
is, is are we going to live our lives with a focus on titles or on towels? <laughs> you know, the disciples, they're having an argument about a title. Who's the greatest? Who's the most important? Who looks the best? How many people can I get to acknowledge that I'm really, really important? <laughs> There's a part of us that likes titles. It's a part of me that likes titles. But in the kingdom, Jesus invites us to be the kind of people that rather take up the towel. We know in our heart and soul the incredible value that we have in the eyes of God. We know that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We know that the Creator God gave everything because He knew how important I was. Yet, I can pick up the towel. And in humility, make others as great as they can be through who I am. Make God as great as He is in the eyes of others through who I am. You know, my encouragement today, that maybe if you, if you know Jesus, if you know God, you describe yourself as a person of faith, ask yourself this question. What might it look like for me to pick up the towel the kingdom of Jesus in a new way in my life. Or maybe this morning, you're here and you're, you're still forming your, your kind of ideas around who God is. Maybe you're unsure about faith. Maybe it's weird for you to be in a church, yet here you are. I want you to know something about who Jesus is this morning. That He's the one that laid down everything just for you. And this picture of washing the feet of his disciples is a picture for you this morning. To know that's how dearly God loves you. That's how little God cares about the, the things in our lives that separate us from him. Sometimes we talk about it as sin or just kind of coming short of who God is. And God doesn't care about that stuff at all. In fact, he takes the towel and he helps us deal with it. He washes it away. He makes himself less so that we can become more when we put our faith and trust in him. And this morning, if you're still processing that, I want to invite you to pray a prayer. Say, God, Jesus, if you're there, I want to know more of who you are in my life. Can we stand all together here this morning? And in a moment, we're going to sing a couple of really cool songs. I invite you just to, to welcome the presence of God in that time. But as I said, if you're here this morning and you want to put your faith in Jesus, I want to pray for you today. That maybe today is an opportunity for you to say, yeah, that's what I want. Maybe you've lived a, a bunch of your life that's been a bit about yourself or looking as good as you can. Can I tell you, there's another option. And it's found in the love of who Jesus is. Let me pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for the incredible pictures of salvation that we see in your scriptures. Jesus, I want to thank you that you are the great creator, that everything holds together in you. Yet, Jesus, you're prepared to make yourself the least among us so that you can provide grace to our lives. And Jesus, I pray that for each one of us, we could just place our faith anew in your provision of grace, Lord. 
And Jesus, I pray for, for those of us here that are kind of recognizing it's time to take up the towel. Lord, would you show us what that means in our lives in new ways, God? And Lord, for anyone here that wants to put their faith in you this morning, maybe if that's you here in this moment, you might just want to kind of just hold your hand out before God as you make this prayer with me. Jesus, if you truly are God, Jesus, if, if I can know grace in you, Jesus, I want to know who you are. Lord, I'm sorry for the things that have separated me from you. And God, I thank you for that picture that you washed me clean. Lord, I want to repent and live my life of faith in you. Thank you for your grace. Show me your presence in my life. Amen. We're going to sing two songs together. Two great songs. As we sing, I might encourage you to just pursue God and say, God, what might you be 